Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 23rd of May, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Uh, well, he hasn't featured on the programme for a little while now, so let's bring Sajid Javid on screen. Uh, he was tweeting this out a couple of days ago. Uh, UK Health Security Agency have confirmed 11 new cases of monkeypox in the UK. Uh, this morning, I updated the G7 ministers on what we know so far. Most cases are mild, and I can confirm that we've procured further doses of vaccines that are effective against monkeypox. So uh, the official story about monkeypox and what it is, uh, is that it doesn't transfer easily between treatment, uh, sorry, between people. There have been cases uh, of it being brought to, the, uh, to Europe. In fact, there were cases in 2018 and 2019 in the United Kingdom. Uh, it's a DNA virus, um, and so it apparently, according to the official narrative, doesn't mutate anywhere near as quickly as uh, an RNA va virus like coronavirus. Uh, people are only infectious when they're symptomatic, so the asymptomatic spread narrative shouldn't work with this one. Uh, the vaccine, of course, is a smallpox vaccine, uh, and uh, but the problem with the smallpox vaccine is if you uh, have eczema, you need to be very, very careful, and particularly if you've got eczema, because there are adverse reactions. And in fact, if you even make skin contact with someone, if you have eczema uh, that has been vaccinated, uh, you have the risk of getting uh, a very unpleasant illness um, called eczema vaccinatum, um, and, uh, or EV as it's known. Um, and uh, so that gets pretty unpleasant pretty quickly and requires hospitalization. So, uh, so that's what's going on. Uh, but David, uh, if we can say welcome to the program. Uh, of course, lots and lots of email traffic over the weekend uh, over uh, monkeypox and uh, the, a, a tabletop uh, rehearsal. Yes, uh, we'll, we'll start, if we may, with, uh, with, with some spreading of fear by Reuters, because you have to have the fear to, to, to put all this in context. Uh, Reuters report, World Health Organization calls emergency meeting as monkeypox cases top 100. Uh, and they're describing, and what Germany described as the largest outbreak in Europe ever, cases have been reported in nine countries. As you said, 100 cases across Europe, not very much. Uh, but we're trying to we're trying to put a, a bit of a bit of spin and a bit of a bit of panic into this, and uh, indeed there, well, just as in the case of uh, the coronavirus uh, pandemic, uh, all of this was rehearsed uh, in tabletop format, uh, not so very long ago. Long ago, uh, here we have uh, an article from NTI, which is the Nuclear Threat Initiative, uh, in consultation with the Munich Security Conference. Uh, they, they had uh, global leaders uh, conducting an annual tabletop exercise uh, to look at the risks of high consequence biological threats. And um, uh, when you dig into this and, and look as to what exact, uh, exactly the biological threat was, uh, they were talking about a localised bioweapons attack with a genetically engineered monkeypox virus uh, beginning in a fictional country of Brinia, and over 18 months, evolving into a globally catastrophic pandemic, uh, leaving 40% of the world's population infected and over a quarter of a billion people dead. So uh, well, that, there you that's, go, that's what the tabletop was looking at. 
Well, that's very interesting, David, because when you actually look at the uh, report itself, also from NTI, so if we put that on screen, here it is, because the, the event took place in March uh, 2021. The report was published in November 2021. It was entitled Strengthening Global Systems to Prevent and Respond to High-Consequence Biological Threats. And when they describe the exercise scenario, they say the exercise scenario portrayed a deadly global pandemic involving an unusual strain of monkeypox virus that emerged in a fictional nation of Brinia and spread globally over 18 months. Ultimately, the exercise scenario revealed that the initial outbreak was caused by a terrorist attack using a pathogen uh, with, inadequately, with inadequate biosafety and biosecurity provisions and weak oversight. By the end of the exercise, the fictional pandemic resulted in more than 3 billion cases and 270 million fatalities worldwide. And my first question was, you know, how did they arrive at these numbers? Um, uh, bearing in mind the types of numbers that we were seeing uh, in the lead up to coronavirus uh, and, uh, uh, well, and how that eventually turned up, turned out. Well, yeah, was Neil Ferguson involved? Did they call on um, uh, Imperial College? I can't find that they did, but this is obviously uh, another case of uh, running mathematical models uh, and uh, generating, um, at least on a tabletop exercise, um, fear, panic, and a, a horrendously bad situation uh, to concentrate people's, people's minds on on risks that we'd have to say have never been shown in modern times to exist. Uh, indeed. So uh, the tabletop exercise, though, did seem to be virtual, David. Yes, we've got here um, all the people um, joining in virtually and uh, all the great and the good, and these are uh, leaders and former leaders and experts from across the world, but they're all joined on in, vertical, uh, in virtually because of uh, COVID, obviously. And um, when we go back into the, uh, the, the main report here, uh, we get some of the discussion as to the findings. So they found there was weak global detection and assessment. There was gaps in national preparedness. Um, uh, there was gaps in biological research governance, you think, and there was insufficient financing, so they need more money uh, to prepare for pandemics. So that's that's good to know. That was a difficult to predict outcome. Uh, the uh, people attending, there's a full list there on the left-hand side of this slide. A few names we've picked out just for your interest. Obviously, we had a look for British names. Jeremy Farrar, the director of Wellcome Trust, was there. Uh, Sam Nunn. Um, uh, former United States Centre and uh, founder and co-chair of the Nuclear Threat Initiative. Um, uh, and uh, Dr. Beth Cameron, uh, senior director of the United States National Security Council. And Dr. Chris Elias, uh, president and global development division, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who were, of course, funding the whole thing. Um, interesting chart, number one here, figure one. Uh, dated the attack, 15th of May, 2022, and uh, with, with deaths starting to mount in 5th of June, 2022. So it's, it's very adjacent to the actual date when we started to hear about monkeypox, which is somewhat interesting. Um, and uh, we've also got here uh, some of the findings, governments should improve preparedness by developing national-level pandemic response plans built upon a coherent system of triggers that prompt 
anticipatory action on a no regrets basis. Um, to translate that into English, Mike, I think that means that we're going to have pre-prepared uh, responses that will be run uh, when the World Health Organization says so, uh, irrespective of logic, reason, judgment on the ground, uh, and irrespective of the amount of damage it might do to our people or nation or economy or anything else. Um, this does not uh, fill me with a great deal of confidence. I don't like to see our glorious leaders talking about operating on a no regrets basis. Um, so I was wondering, Mike, how did you think this, this whole new scare was going to go down with uh, the world population? Would we uh, be falling for it as we uh, fell for, as many people, the majority of people, fell for the COVID scare? Well, I, I think uh, I think that's going to be a very divisive situation once again, as it was with COVID. The question is how many more people have learned uh, over the COVID situation uh, and uh, treat this with a little bit more scepticism. But uh, I'd, I'd just add to that, Mike. I think the important thing is to keep highlighting what Bill Gates is up to, because, of course, with his germ team, he's saying that ultimately it won't be the World Health Organization that's in control of, of pandemic preparedness and measures in nation states. It will be his germ team. So we need to keep focused on him. Perhaps we also need to get the minutes of the meeting when he was in Downing Street with Boris Johnson. What was discussed between these two individuals? Um, right, we're expecting to have a, 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 an article on this topic uh, up on the UK column website this afternoon from Dr. Mike Williams. Uh, and uh, so uh, keep an eye on the UK column website uh, sometime later on in the afternoon and you should see that. Uh, but David, we have a couple of uh, we, we, responses we do, here. We, we do have it. Yes, we do have some cause for hope. Um, so everyone's meant to be scared. And at least some of our, uh, some of the people out there in um, social media land are not. Here we've got an excellent, an excellent meme. Uh, monkey pox on its bicycle chasing after the terrified 11 people who still believe the media. Uh, quite like that one. And uh, have no fear because um, breaking news, new PCR test for monkeypox virus is already available. And it's a man uh, inserting a banana up his nose. And um, that uh, does show that uh, there is a view out there that this is not to be taken seriously and that they're not going to buy the lies a second time. Um, well, just uh, for the sake of interest here, this, this has been, of course, labelled an, uh, an annual tabletop event. Uh, let's have a look at the previous ones. Uh, this was the 2019 one. Uh, they're clearly very concerned about the potential for de deliberate biological events because the 2019 one was a spreading plague lessons and recommendations for responding to a deliberate biological event. Uh, the 2021 was called uh, preventing global catastrophic risks lessons and recommendations from a tabletop exercise held at the 2020 Munich Security Conference. Uh, the 2022 event obviously took place in March uh, but hasn't the report hasn't been published yet. But uh, as we mentioned, uh, vaccines uh, at the beginning uh, and Sajid Javid's comments on this, we shouldn't be concerned because uh, Bavaria Nordic, Nordio here or is uh, saying Bavaria Nordic uh, assists Public Health England in response to new cases of uh, monkeypox. Uh, and uh, well, that's from last year. So, you know, we have uh, plenty of uh, uh, assets available to be deployed if necessary, Brian. 
Yeah, well, we, we need to watch this very carefully because, of course, this is about control. It's not about health. Ultimately, it's about health security. So this is, can we lock down people in even greater numbers? Can we dispose, in my opinion, of people in even greater numbers? Um, well, let's move on to food and food security. And uh, here's the lovely Barbara Wood Woodward, who's the UK ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, and uh, well, she was talking about food security uh, a day or two ago, and she had this to say at the start of the year, uh, the UN's global humanitarian overview warned of unprecedented levels of global, global food insecurity driven by a perfect storm of COVID-19, the climate crisis and conflict. Um, that, so that's her claim. Uh, she went on to say Yemen, for example, faces catastrophic levels of food insecurity for the fifth year running. Well, of course, that is conflict related, uh, but of course, it's uh, the United Kingdom uh, and her government, uh, which is uh, assisting very much with th that situation. No hypocrisy there. Uh, and across the world, she said 13 million hungry children already subsisting on a knife edge of those 2 million now face starvation this year. And the, the main point about uh, her presentation was that this is mainly Russia's fault uh, because of what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. Um, so the Russian uh, ambassador to the United Nations uh, had something to say about this. We've got a, a little piece of video here. Uh, this is uh, Vasily uh, Nebenzia. Uh, just have a listen to this. The stories connected with food security have been one of the main areas of accusation levelled at Russia. Today's meeting is an eloquent illustration of this. In listening to you, gentlemen, it would seem to be that we want to starve everyone to death and that only you and Ukraine allegedly care about how to save the lives of the hungry. There's an important factor here, and that is the very rapid transition to green energy that's being forced on the whole world instead of a thought-out gradual energy transition, and also the open politicization of energy cooperation in a number of countries. The outcome then is the, the, the unreasonable rejection of energy projects and the increase in the price of energy products. The price for oil on stock markets in 2020 to 2022 increased by more than 22%. And that means gas oil for agricultural machines, it means petrol for transporting agricultural products, and it also covers electricity for the food industry. There was also a record increase in the price of gas. In December 2021, the spot price of gas crossed the psychological barrier of $2,000 for a single, for, or for 1,000 cubic meters. And this is despite the fact that Russia had increased its supply. The direct consequence of this was the unprecedented increase in prices for mineral fertilizers as early as 2021 in December. The prices for urea and nitrates increased by three and a half fold and for other forms of fertilizer by two and a half to three fold. There was also an increase in the price of fertilizer and that means an increase in the price of grain. So, David, I think all those were extremely valid points. And the, the main point there is, of course, all this started well before any issues in Ukraine, between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, and, uh, and his point about the fact that uh, Russia was supplying more gas than it had previously, and yet the price still went up, uh, that is a very important one. It is. There were points very well and powerfully made, and this is, again, a return to, um, to to reason and logic from the uh, from the Russian perspective. Uh, the abundance of food that we've had, the reduction in hunger, the reduction in poverty uh, that has accompanied the end of the Soviet Union, the end of the end of socialism, 
and the opening up of markets is of course now being reversed by the Western governments with the green agenda. And this is having an inevitable and extremely harmful effect. And uh, it was the Russians who were telling the truth about it there. Uh, indeed. Um, but don't worry, because the British government has, uh, has it all in hand. So at the same time that we're uh, turning our agricultural land into wildflower meadow, uh, we're putting restrictions on the number of animals that farmers are allowed to raise. And we're also uh, encouraging farmers to leave the industry. Uh, we don't have to worry because the UK government is encouraging gene edited crops. Uh, so this is the headline in the Telegraph uh, from uh, today. And uh, it says gene edited crops sped up to guarantee food supplies. Well, in fact, this has been going on for quite some time. It's not new and it's not as a result of uh, Ukraine conflict, although clearly uh, the Ukraine conflict is being used as a justification for it. Uh, but let's bring George Eustace on screen. Here he is. And this is from September last year. Gene editing, he said, had, has the ability to harness the genetic resources that nature has provided. It's a tool that could help us in order to tackle some of the biggest challenges we face around food security, climate change and biodiversity loss. Uh, that was in September. By January, I think this was, yes, January, here's uh, Joe Churchill, who's the Minister for Agri-Innovation and Climate Adaptation, uh, if anybody wasn't aware. Uh, she was saying new genetic technologies could help us tackle some of the biggest challenges of our age around food security, climate change and biodiversity loss. You think she had the same scriptwriter? Uh, clearly she did, but she then went on to say, now we have the freedom and opportunity to foster innovation, uh, to improve the environment and help us grow plants that are stronger and more resilient to climate change because in January they'd already announced new legislation to be put in place to cut unnecessary red tape for gene editing, helping our farmers to grow more resistant, nutritious and productive crops. And I was all right, carry on. Carry well, on. I was just going <laughs> to say they were very, very keen to make sure that everybody understood that gene editing is different from genetic modification because it does not result in the introduction of DNA from other species and creates new varieties similar to those that could be produced more slowly by natural breeding processes, but currently they're regulated in the same way as genetically modified uh, organisms. So in order to uh, make sure that uh, those restrictions are lifted, they're bringing in new legislation. So the Telegraph article is uh, talking about something that the British government has been working on for a very long time now and uh, is not directly related to Ukraine. Uh, no, but can, can I just add, of course, they are saying that this technology can also help food supplies in Ukraine. So never mind millions of displaced people, the fact that there aren't people to work on the and the land and much of the land is part of the conflict. So it can't be productively farmed anyway. Uh, don't worry about all of that because gene editing is, is going to save uh, food production. Yes. Now, just very briefly on inflation, I just wanted to put this on screen for Market Watch. Uh, German producer prices soar 33% annually in April, highest increase on record. Uh, so they're saying that producer and prices in Germany are it was actually 33.5% on a year up uh, on a year on year basis, uh, and that's three points higher than the already historical uh, record of last month. Uh, and uh, so this, of course, is going to have a fairly major impact on consumer prices in Germany. Food prices already 17% uh, higher than last year according to the German Statistics Bureau. Uh, so, David, you know, the news, there's, the news doesn't get any better. And uh, it, it's, clearly, it's clearly the case that no other country is going to be able to help compensate for what's going on here or in the United States. Well, certainly not Germany, because Christine Lagarde is saying, well, in maybe three months, we might move the interest rate 
from negative in the EU zone. So the, the policy in Europe seems to be we're going to wait while the Fed and the Bank of England sort things because we can rely on them uh, and then it won't cost us anything. Um, I think that's not a good strategy. <laughs> and what we're seeing here is another sign of the crack-up boom, the rush to real goods, the rush away from money. Um, this is getting now extremely serious. Yes. Uh, not only se um, extremely serious, David, it seems that uh, world events at the moment are causing trouble between the big players. So while I was having a look on the BBC website this morning, not something that I enjoy, but I do it for the news, um, they were promoting this Financial Times uh, headline. Well, they had the front page of the Financial Times. So here we are, investors challenged by demise of three-decade era of globalisation. It's a very interesting uh, article. Of course, it's talking about world leaders preparing to meet in Davos. And then it's got another bullet point there. Geopolitical tension sparks decoupling fears. Uh, well, I noticed this little bit here, which uh, was our old friend uh, Barroso speaking. Um, he's now chair of Goldman Sachs International. Uh, let's have a look at what he actually said in the article. Global globalization faces friction from nas nationalism, protectionism, nativism, chauvinism, if you wish, or even sometimes xenophobia. And for me, it is not clear who is going to win. I'm going to come over to you, David, in just a second. Let's finish, finish the second quote here from this gentleman, Dominic Assam, Chief Financial Officer of Airbus. He said, if a meaningful part of decades of productivity gains driven by globalization was reversed in a short period of time, this would drive inflation up and result in a major protracted recession. And, and uh, he said, finally, economic powers will have to do everything they can to avert such a devastating scenario. What I found so fascinating about these articles was that it seemed to me that there's strife in the globalist camp. Uh, the more I read into the article, the more it seemed to me that even at very high level globalist companies, major players, they don't fully understand what is happening around them. They don't fully understand that events are being driven and I suspect many of them will not actually understand this is heading towards a great reset. Don't know how you'd respond to that, David. I think it's fascinating that, that you've got here the globalist saying, well, you have to be globalist because if you're not globalist, you're xenophobic. Right? So that's the false, the false choice they're offering. Right? Now, we've heard this before. You have, to, you have to vote to stay in the EU or you're racist. We've heard these lies before, right? They, they don't work, right? But they're still trying it. Um, they're talking about productivity gains from globalization. Well, you get productivity gains from an increase in the division of labor, yes. But there's, there was an, a huge information technology revolution that uh, vastly improved um, productivity all across the world that he seems to have forgotten about. And of course, why are people angry about globalization is because they feel they're getting ripped off. And the reason they're getting ripped off is that 50% of every transaction which involves money involves fraudulent money and not money, um, money with integrity. I'll explain later where that phrase comes from, or honest money. And they are getting ripped off. 
and they're unable to address this because obviously the international banking system is based on that fraud and needs that fraud as its business model. And this is why globalization is not winning the hearts and minds of the people. And you're correct, Brian, that what you're detecting there is a bit of panic. Yeah, thank you for that. There's one more. Uh, well, of course, this, this uh, reinforced it. This was also on that front page. The headline says it all. HSBC suspends senior executive after climate change speech sparks fury. So what could this possibly be about? Well, we only had to go to one place. And here's the quote. Stuart Kirk, global head of responsible investing at the bank's asset management division, accused central bankers and policymakers of overstating the financial risks of climate change in an attempt to out hyperbole the next guy. Yes. So it seems to me that there's trouble at mill, as they used to say. And we have many people who believe that when we look at the globalist plan unfolding for the world, Everybody who is a globalist understands what's happening, but clearly this is not the case. And of course, division is good for ordinary people because that uh, is the crack into which we can drive the wedge. David, you're smiling while I'm talking. You've obviously enjoyed that headline. Oh, I enjoyed that enormously, Ryan. Right. Now, this is getting at what's a little thing we like to call the truth. Um, there's not much warming going on, but if there is warming, it's beneficial, at least in the short and medium term, it, it's beneficial. Everything gets better. The planet gets more benign. We grow more crops. The, the climate improves. Everything is better uh, unless you run the climate models and predict catastrophic events a long way out. And how do you, how do you equate short-term benefits to long-term risks? Well, you need a discount rate, an interest rate. And if you use a real one, like 5%, uh, and you do the calculations, uh, and you try, to, you try to put a cost on carbon, it comes out negative. We should be subsidizing coal-fired coal fire, fire power plants in accordance with their own figures. Um, it's only if you put uh, interest rates to zero and concentrate on the very distant events predicted by the models, that you actually get a problem. So he's quite right. Even on their own figures, even taking the entire global warming narrative as correct, on their own figures, he is absolutely right. What do you get for being right in the banking industry? Cancelled. Uh, Cancelled, absolutely. Yes, indeed. Uh, okay, if uh, you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, there are options to help us out there, uh, or you could pick something up at the uh, UK Column shop. Uh, but in any case, if you'd like to share our material on the various platforms, that'd be very much appreciated. Um, and uh, uh, another reminder of uh, the Panda event taking place uh, on the 26th of May. Uh, get more details at Eventbrite. Uh, the title is A Quest for Open Science with Nick Hudson. Uh, we'll have more to say about that on Wednesday. Yeah. Well, uh, let's uh, just dig into Ukraine a little bit. And of course, if we look at uh, mainstream media, the old media across UK and worldwide, everything at the moment is being printed to suggest that the Russians are actually incompetent. Morale is at a terrible level. They're losing on the battlefield. It's only a matter of time before uh, Ukraine wins. 
the propaganda is really quite astonishing. So here we've got just one example, Sky News. And what is the headline? Ukraine war smaller and smaller Russian offences. Uh, offensives. And uh, then, of course, we've got experts. This gentleman, I believe, is from Rusi. Uh, many of the experts have never been in the military themselves. They've never been fighting on the battlefield. But of course, they have been diligent in the classroom. And apparently, we can believe what they have to say. So we're just going to label this with more Western propaganda about what's happening. Uh, but of course, we can pop across to CNN. Uh, this was a particularly unpleasant interview. Uh, where a retired Lieutenant General Hurtling um, is basically claiming that uh, Putin is, is now so desperate that he's micromanaging at a tactical level in the war. But no evidence given, of course, in this report. It's quite unbelievable. Can I just say that's very, very strange? They should get their narrative correct because he's saying that, he's, that Putin's micromanaging, whereas the Daily Mail today was saying that Putin is producing fake videos in the past so, so they can keep rolling out videos from Putin because actually he's away getting medical treatment and, and uh, they want to roll out these fake videos, these staged videos, as, as it was described, in order to make it seem like it's business as usual. So which is it? Well, the problem for the West is that the lies are now catching out our own media, uh, as we saw with the BBC talking about the Russians advancing and the Russians being slow on the same news page. But of course, you get a really good hint as to what's going on. This is was the front page from BBC just earlier today. Uh, top left, which is where the Western eye goes to read straight away, Russian soldier jailed for life for Ukrainian war crime. So there's the spin. But where is the detail on the war in Ukraine? And if I animate this and we scroll down the BBC's uh, website, oh dear, Ukraine is is dropping off the bottom. We've got to go way down past the most watched. And there, after local news, we suddenly come into reporting on Ukraine. So why could this possibly be that Ukraine has now disappeared out of the headlines? Well, of course, it is because the truth is that the Russians are not losing in Ukraine. The opposite is true. But if you click on the uh, image, uh, the BBC will take you through to the Institute for the Study of War Maps. Uh, these are on a, uh, a very small scale, so you really can't pick up much from them. And that's, of course, the intent. But let's look at what even the BBC has to say. Russian forces appear to be consolidating their positions in the east of the country after using heavy firepower to weaken Ukraine's defences. Here are the latest developments. Bombardment of Donbass region by Russian forces is intensifying. Russian reinforcements expected to hold positions uh, north of Kharkiv. Russia preparing to surround the city of Severodonetsk. So these are all very, very important things on the battlefield. But of course, they've been pushed to the bottom of the BBC page. Now, I've mentioned this gentleman before. Don't be put off by his sense of humour or sometimes the way he delivers his reports. Uh, Defence Politics Asia is giving very, very detailed reports of the fighting the whole way along the fronts. And he's showing where he's getting his information from and he's showing why he's able to give very, very detailed reports that the BBC can't give. And I'll just go back to the 20th of May, where we highlighted that if you went to his website, 
what he was posting was Russian forces capturing uh, um, urban area after urban area. Some of these are quite small and appear to be insignificant, but as far as the battle's concerned, they're all extremely significant. Well, let's come up to date a bit more. And we can now see that we've got even more reports of Russian forces capturing. And what people need to, to realize is that over the ground area in Ukraine, the Ukrainian forces over many years have dug in in all sorts of locations. They're not only fighting in the big cities, they are dug in to a great extent in uh, rural areas. And this means that the Russians have to move very slowly dealing with each entrenchment as they come up against it. But of course, the facts are showing that uh, they are doing the job. And uh, this is probably the key question uh, many people want to know. Why are the Western weapons not making a major difference in the battle? And the answer to that is too little, too late, but also the weapons being given, despite all the claims, were old. And we can now see that, for instance, the Stinger missiles given originally uh, were having problems. So with the Javelins, understand part of that to do with battery life. And these things were so old that the batteries were no longer working properly. If you want more detail, you might like to go to the Dreisen report that, as an example, has a really excellent article now saying, well, don't think that the American howitzers are going to change the battle because there's all sorts of uh, problems with those. And um, that's going to lead in, David, to your report about the philosophy of uh, Russia's war. Uh, yes, thanks. Thanks, Brian. Um, this is a, an article from Mises Wire, right? So he's on, they're talking about understanding Russia's war, the strange philosophy of Alexander Dugin. Now, Alexander Dugin is a man who's uh, called uh, Putin's Rasputin or Putin's brain and uh, reputedly is, is listened to by Vladimir Putin and is very influential in, in uh, the direction of Russian policy. Uh, so Mises Wire continues, uh, Russians are eschatologically chosen, referring to end, biblical end times, uh, they must stand against the false faith, the pseudo-religion of Western liberalism, and the spread of its evil, modernity, scientism, post-modernity, and the new world order. This is the thesis of Alexander Dugin, prominent Russian philosopher and mentor of Putin. Um, and uh, they continue with a quote um, from, um, uh, from Dugin. I strongly believe that modernity is absolutely wrong and the sacred tradition is absolutely right. USA, the USA is a manifestation of all I hate, modernity, westernization, unipolarity, racism, imperialism, technocracy, individualism and capitalism. An interesting uh, mixed bag there. So in his eyes, America is a society of the Antichrist. Um, more on that story uh, later in the news. Uh, the United States of America is an uh, ominous and alarming country without history, without tradition, without roots. The result of a pure experiment by European utopian rationalists. The laments that America is opposing its planetary domination and experiencing the triumph of its lifestyle spreading all across the world. He criticizes that in herself and only in herself does America see the norms of progress and civilization? So, strong words from him. Let's hear a little bit uh, directly. We have a short video clip. Uh, I think that liberalism is absolutely wrong, not because of liberalism, but because of modernity, 
because modernity, liberal, was liberal from the beginning, it was not so clear from the beginning that individualism will win finally over socialism or nationalism, but now it is clear. And that was individualistic roots of the Western modernity that is wrong, that the concept of the man, of the human being as an individual, is individual is wrong. So I am trying to to challenge that, uh, trying to propose alternative anthropology in order to fight against liberalism. And if liberals who are prevailing in the modern world judge uh, me uh, most dangerous philosopher, I, I, for me it is a pleasure. So he is definitely standing against liberalism because liberalism stands for the individual and comes from, um, for example, uh, very much from the Anglo-Saxon and particularly Scottish um, uh, Christian ideas, which he also opposes uh, vehemently. Um, and um, if we go to a little bit more of the Mises Wire um, article, um, they're talking about some of his basic concepts of geopolitics can be traced back to uh, Halford Mackinder um, and Hofschroeder, um, Hofschroeder, and um, they also comment in criticism that as to the thesis of a fundamental cultural rift between Western Europe and Russian lands, one should remember that the Russian Orthodox Church is in many aspects closer to Catholicism uh, than the Catholic Church is to Protestantism in the West, the Russian literature of music and music of the 18th century were deeply influenced by the Western part of Europe, and the Russian contributions spread as strongly back into Western Europe. It was not a cultural rift that made Russia adopt Marxism instead of free capitalism and the values of classical liberalism. Russia imported the false ideologies from the West by opting for Marxism from the West instead of liberal capitalism from the West. Russia made its greatest mistake so far, which is um, in, in large respect true. But what we'll now get is another clip where Dugan gets to his criticism of liberalism. And this starts to get very interesting. Idea of liberalism, it is only negative freedom, the liberty. Uh, that uh, negative freedom means that liberals defend only liberty from and not freedom for. That was in the middle, in the, in the essence, in the central uh, founders of liberalism. So a negative kind of, of uh, freedom is real and has content when you compare liberalism with not liberal system. For example, uh, traditional society or in the modernity with uh, totalitarian regimes as uh, communism or fascism. So in that case, liberalism is operative, is working, uh, because uh, um, uh, the negative freedom is the negative from uh, absence of freedom represented in totalitarian or authoritarian regime. So it is something real. But when all these regimes are won by liberalism, and that was the case in the 1901, when Fukuyama, with whom I from time to time have debates very fruitful as long as uh, I concern myself at least so uh, when he has declared the end of history that was completely rightful uh, remark because that was the end of comparison between liberalism and communism so 
uh, from now on there was only one uh, political ideology prevailing on the world scale, that was liberalism. But in that situation uh, there appeared the limits of liberalism, because it, uh, the, the liberty of liberalism is real, comparing with communism or fascism, with totalitarianism. When liberalism is compared to itself, it becomes totalitarian and it, be it begins to show its uh, inner negativity on one hand and other hand, uh, it begins to manifest its totalitarian nature. Because now you are free in the world with uh, liberalism uh, omnipresent and uh, that uh, has won. In that position, liberalism gives us the freedom to be liberal. And it takes off the freedom to be illiberal. And, and I think this is a fascinating point. So he's saying that, the, the, that once there was no competitor, to the Western system, um, it itself became totalitarian. Now, we've already discussed uh, a banker being sacked, suspended for simply speaking the truth uh, against the climate change agenda. And we know that there are thousands of examples of people standing up for traditional values, religious values, radical values. It almost doesn't matter if anything which diverges from the approved narrative is crushed, is is deplatformed. Um, that is the liberal totalitarianism that he's describing. We'll see more examples of it later in the news. So it's very interesting to see that there is a a, a soundness to to the analysis of the West. Um, and whilst there's much to criticise in his philosophy, uh, I think, uh, gentlemen, there's actually quite a bit to learn. Well. I my response to that, David, would be: I would hope we can all learn from other people and uh, and the uh, view of the West that it's only our view of the world and what other people think and believe that is correct. This, of course, does lead to our own demise. So we should be taking a lot of views into account, even if subsequently we decide not to run with some of them. Now, um, back to the Ukraine more specifically. Um, Buka is, I think, the Ukraine conflict in microcosm. The truth about Buka will define the truth about the conflict in many, many ways. So uh, first, let's start off with this article here, Info Bay, um, back from April the 3rd. Um, Ukraine revealed chilling images of the massacre perpetrated by Russia in Buka. Um, it talks about sensitive images, and certainly there were many horrific images in this. The Bucha massacre was deliberate. The Russians intended to eliminate as many Ukrainians as they can. We must stop them and drive them out, says the UK foreign minister. Uh, in a chilling message, which is, uh, uh, in which she shared images of, ex of civilians executed by Putin's forces. So that's the official narrative. We're still seeing that in, in the BBC. The question is, of course, is it true? Um, we have a couple of clips here from Scott Ritter exploring this. Scott Ritter, um, former United States Marine, was involved in the Iraq conflict and many other conflicts around the world on behalf of the American state. Um, and uh, although sometimes I found him to be a little overstated or a little uncertain on the Ukrainian situation, 
He knows conflict. And he's speaking here from direct personal experience. And he's looking at the Ukraine and he's comparing it to what he saw in the United States military. And the conclusions are fascinating. The modern military math is, generally speaking, in a modern conflict, for every combatant that dies, a civilian dies. So if we're in a war where 100,000 soldiers have died on both sides, you're probably going to have 100,000 dead civilians. That's just the way it works. But not in Ukraine. In Ukraine, the numbers are much higher for enemy for, for combatants killed than civilians killed. The, still, the number's still big for civilians, but the ratio is not one-to-one. -one. The ratio is like seven-to-one. Seven combatants for every single civilian killed. Why? Because the Russians are coming in soft. So this is the first point, and I think this must be emphasized time and time again. The way the Russians are fighting is manifestly different from the way that the West fought in Iraq, uh, that fought in Kuwait, that fought in Libya. They have not gone in and bombed the Ukraine into the Stone Age. They have not gone and destroyed the entire civilian infrastructure and, and um, any means of resistance and then come in with, with, with then huge armored forces against very little resistance. David, They've sorry, actually if, I, if I can just fought I, in a much more. Yeah, go, if I can just sort of mention uh, when I was speaking to Richard Black last week, Colonel Richard Black, he was saying something very similar. The point he was making was that in the first 40 days of the Iraq conflict, uh, the West flew 100,000 sorties, and each one of those, of course, was dropping bombs. Uh, in the first 40 days of the Ukraine conflict, uh, Russia flew 8,000 sorties. So, uh, you know, the, the, the scale of it, the, the shock and awe was, was if you remember the, the headline that, that uh, uh, was in the, the media with respect to Iraq and what we were doing in Iraq, it's a very different approach. Yes, I, I thought that was an excellent interview uh, that, that you did uh, uh, with Mr. Black, and it, it, it's, um, it covered a lot of the same ground. Um, the second clip here, uh, speaks directly um, to the evidence of the Buka massacre. Now, there's a couple of things about the dead bodies. One, um, most of them are wearing white armbands, which means that they were telling the Russians, we're on your side. <laughs> Don't shoot us. Right? Two, near each body is a green dry ration box, which they were carrying when they got killed, and it's on the ground next to them. Three, when they didn't have the armband, it's because the armband had been taken off and used to bind their hands behind their back. These people were murdered, murdered, not by the Russians, but by the Ukrainians. And yet that's not the spin that we're getting right now. The spin we're getting is just the opposite. All the forensic data that's available right now strongly suggests that the Ukrainians are responsible for the death of these people in Bukha. There's no doubt about it. The other interesting thing is they're trying to say these bodies died. I don't want to get too graphic here, but I've been around dead bodies. All right. You shoot a body on, on March 19th and you leave it lying in the street in 50 and 60 degree weather until April 2nd. The body ain't looking like they're looking on TV. Bodies tend to blow it up. This, the, the, the clothing tends to tear because the body swells and then the body bursts and it's very disgusting, it's gross, it's fetid, it's putrid. It's not what you saw on TV. What you saw on TV were freshly killed human beings. And we have another piece of evidence 
that more people need to pay attention to. A Mexican journalist gained access to Buka on the same day that the Ukrainians were declaring this, and he filmed the bodies, fresh blood. He sat there and said, these people are freshly killed. This is fresh blood. Body ain't laying there since March 19th and has fresh blood. These people were murdered on April 1st by the Ukrainian National Police, and yet we have the President of the United States coming out and saying that this is a war crime perpetrated by the Russians and Vladimir Putin needs to be brought to justice in The Hague. So that is the Ukraine in a nutshell. If that's true, and I believe it is, then essentially the entire Western narrative is false. And that what we're seeing here, what, what is being reported in the West, is a, is a, is a complete reversal of the truth. Now, uh, this, this put me in mind, when, what do you think of when you, when you see a massacre um, committed by one side and then um, uh, place the responsibility, the blame placed by the perpetrator on, an, on another party who was, in fact, innocent, in fact, who was the other, uh, the other side of the conflict? Well, this is of course, this is of course the Katyn massacre um, in 1940. Um, Katyn massacre, mass, mass execution of Polish military by the Soviet Union during World War II, um, and this was uh, long denied. For years, you couldn't be in Poland and talk the truth about this because it was under Russian domination. If you'd been in involved in the in the investigation, um, you would be a threat yourself. Um, this was suppressed for decades by the Stalinist regime and the regime that followed it. Um, and it wasn't until until um, 2010 that the State Duma, the lower house of the Russian parliament, um, declared that Joseph Stalin and other Soviet leaders were responsible for ordering the execution of the Polish officers at Katyn. So we're now seeing the point, the, the part in this conflict of the oppressor, of the Joseph Stalin, of the totalitarian regime being um, played out by the West and its associated regime in the Ukraine, not by the Russians, uh, who are having uh, uh, who, who are having all of the the blame laid at their door, but it does not appear to be true. Okay, so well, that brings me then to the question of where are we going next? Um, so let's uh, put this on screen. This is the Financial Times from the fifteenth of May, uh, and uh, this article was headlined: uh, "Crimea could be Putin's tipping point in a game of nuclear chicken," uh, and this is from uh, Malcolm Chalmers, who is. Uh, uh, from the Royal United Services Institute, the Deputy De Director General. He then, uh, a few days later on the 20th of May, published this on the RUSI website, which is an expansion of that Financial Times article. Uh, this war still presents nuclear risks, especially in relation to Crimea. And so what he's saying is that actually the West needs to have an eye, what is described as an eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball nuclear showdown between the United States and Russia, a what he's called a Cuban Missile Crisis on Steroids. Uh, because that makes it easier, he says, to settle the Russia-Ukraine war. He says that Ukraine, which is uh, emboldened by the strategy, NATO strategy of boiling the Russian frog. Well, let's just put this on screen. Boiling the Russian frog. I just find that to be a really horrible term. 
And he's saying over the last three months, NATO allies have progressively increased the size and sophistication of the weapons that have been prepared to supply to Ukraine. Despite this, Russia has refrained from attacking supply convoys on NATO territory. The absence of chemical weapons used by Russia might also be partly explained by the fear of NATO retaliation. First of all, that paragraph says to me, Brian, that this guy is not quite rational. But anyway, uh, you know, the point he's trying to make here is that really what we need is uh, to be walking right up to the line of nuclear confrontation, confrontation with Russia, because that's the only way to settle this. And that, that's just insanity. It's insanity. And my mind goes back to the Cold War period where it was true that during the the whole time the Cold War was in existence, there were a number of cases where uh, there was misreading of actions by both sides that led to ultimately to the red telephones being used in order to de-escalate what had got to an exceptionally serious point of possible major nuclear exchange. And I can tell you, uh, okay, we've got to say the, the word that came through, this is not based on documents, but the word that came through was that senior people were very frightened indeed that they had been able to get so close to somebody pressing a button. Mm. So this man is talking like a child. Um, so let's move on to this one then. This is a Henry Jackson Society, uh, breaking the China supply chain, how the five eyes can decouple from, the, from strategic dependency. So this is all about uh, effectively economic war. We're already in an economic war with Russia at the moment, but we need to be in an economic war with China, says Henry Jackson Society. So uh, obviously five eyes is the UK, US, uh, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Um, and uh, so decoupling is the message. And strangely enough, um, that's what Joe Biden is attempting to do at the moment. Now, just before we explain what I mean by that, just remind everybody of this. Uh, this was from last week. Eye on China, South Korea joins NATO cyber defense unit. Uh, and then we have uh, this from the Japan Times. Japan to attend NATO summit in June, says US Secretary of State Antony Blinken. And lo and behold, uh, that's from last week. And then today, or in the last couple of days and today, uh, Biden has been in South Korea for three days. He's heading over to uh, Tokyo to, to meet the Japanese now. But, and this meeting, this tour is all about decoupling from China's economy. So he met with uh, uh, the North Korean president, uh, four-day visit to South Korea and Japan. Uh, and uh, so this is all about containment of China uh, and containment of decoupling from the economy, but also keeping the pressure on for South Korea and Japan to become more engaged with NATO directly. And this is more insanity. Yes. But yes. <laughs> well, we've got a senile president, um, a lot of people being protective of Biden at the moment, but as a result of his um, thought processes or lack of thought processes, of course, many, many tens of thousands of people are being killed at the moment, hundreds of thousands of people. So I don't think we should uh, be too surprised at anything the man says. Yes. So where does that take us? Uh, this is David's. David and Israel. Yes, I was struck on the uh, excellent news on Friday, which I thought was fascinating, uh, that Vanessa Bealey was saying that uh, so far the Russians hadn't used the S-300 missile systems to shoot at the Israeli jets. Well, that's now no longer true. You know, the war zone reports um, an S-300 battery in Syria launched at least one surface-to-air missile at the Israeli Air Force F-16 fighter jets in recent days. Um, 
the, uh, there was the, they, they, they fired at least one, one missile at uh, jets uh, targeting Syria's northwest city of Masyaf last Friday. So more or less, as uh, Vanessa was telling us this, it was uh, changing on the ground. Yes. And um, we have here, uh, also it goes on to explain, the timing of the exchange of the fire aligns with is Israel's changing policy over Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. Israel has begun supplying some weaponry to Ukrainian forces in recent weeks, after initially slow rolling its support for Ukraine's struggle against the invading Russians, they write. Israeli officials reportedly attended uh, the US-hosted summit regarding military aid to Ukraine at Ramstein Air Base in Germany last month. Um, and they go on to explain that the missiles have a very long range, 124 mile range, which takes them more or less right across Israel uh, to the Med. And um, that uh, it, it concludes Syria using Russian missiles, perhaps under the command of Russian officers, to shoot down an Israeli F-16 would undoubtedly escalate the situation in Syria to new heights. But the pot shot at Israeli fighters via an S-300 system, if indeed it did occur as reported, was likely more of a reminder to Israel that Russia can make their very favourable situation over Syrian skies much less so if they please. Considering the tensions over Ukraine, such a signal shouldn't surprise anyone. So uh, what they're suggesting is this is this is the Russians telling the Israeli government to keep off the grass. Yeah, indeed. OK, thank you for that, David. Whilst, while we're on the subject of uh, Israel, this uh, particular uh, article popped up this morning and I, I found it very interesting. Now, I've no idea of the uh, um, the quality of reporting from this site, Israel 365. I'm taking this particular article at face value but I found it very, very interesting. And um, what were they talking about here? Uh, BBC interviewing a Ukrainian soldier with Nazi symbol on uniform. Now, this is referring to stuff that many people have seen before, but nevertheless, I found it interesting that this Israeli site and a religious Israeli site is picking up on this. And in the short article, um, there was an embedded video clip, which has actually come from Russia today, but Russia today is commenting on a BBC clip. So if we fill in the blanks there, we've got a biblical Israeli website highlighting the BBC's whitewashing of Nazis in Ukraine. And let's just have a look at the short clip. Their steady determination and a little help from Western weaponry have got them this far. Mark tells us we have to move. Well, that patch on the soldier's arm is the symbol of Nazi Germany's SS division known as Death's Head. The division was formed of concentration camp guards at the start of the Second World War, and it was known for the mass murder of war prisoners, including 97 British soldiers captured, captured in France in 1940. No mention of any of this was made during the interview. And contrast that with the past. Back in 2014, the BBC reported on the role of neo-Nazis in the conflict in Ukraine. And in 2012, the channel made a documentary over racism and anti-Semitism in Ukrainian as well as Polish football stadiums. There, that came ahead of the Euro Championship held in the two countries and showed neo-Nazi gestures being made at Ukrainian stadiums. 
Editor of the Grey Zone, Max Blumenthal, says it's important to report on the issue of extremism in the conflict, especially as the West is giving its weapons to Ukraine. As I just revealed at the Grey Zone, the BBC correspondent and fixer who is shaping that network's coverage of the events around Mariupol is actually a Ukrainian nationalist public relations operative who is involved in creating a viral app that is being called by the Washington Post one of the uh, top Ukrainian information weapons. And so I'm not surprised with the whitewashing. It is unfortunate, though, that Western audiences are deprived of important context on Ukrainian politics and what brought the situation to this point. Ukraine is one of the only countries in the world that has an officially neo-Nazi unit with Nazi-inspired insignia incorporated into its National Guard, whose civilian wing, the National Corps, has operated under the auspices officially of the Interior Ministry. So lots of uh, very interesting questions being asked by Max Blumenthal there. And many people in our chat box saying how fascinating that on one hand, we've got Israel apparently now starting to arm the Ukrainians, and we've got Israelis uh, actually highlighting the fact of the Nazi uh, affiliations of Azov and other members inside Ukraine. So again, this brings us to the fact that we have to look very carefully at what's happening around us. We can't simply uh, lump one block of people together and say everything on the agenda is wrong. We have to look at the detail of what's happening. David. I just say that the massacre he was referring to is a Leparidus massacre, uh, which happened just before the Dunkirk uh, evacuation. It's involved mostly the Royal Norfolk Regiment uh, and also a separate uh, incident nearby involving about 20 Royal Scots uh, who had been captured um, and were also murdered. Um, happened under the, the uh, control of the same uh, German uh, unit. So this is uh, something that, uh, that, that in Britain we should remember, and that should be a red flag to us. Yes. Okay, well, where do we go now? Disinformation Guidance Board. Uh, a change of heart, it would seem, by the Americans. Well, you're always asking me, Brian, for good news stories. And, uh, well, we've got one. Um, so CBS, so we're going back to May the 2nd. CBS report, disinformation governance board to tackle the spread of misinformation in the US, focusing on Russia and the US-Mexico border. Department of Homeland Security is setting up a disinformation governance board to try to counter the spread of false information. The board will focus on disinformation coming from Russia as well as misleading messages about the US-Mexico border, says the, uh, says the Associated Press. Now, within a tiny amount of time, in fact, even before that report had come out, some beautiful human being had set up a, a, a Twitter account for US Mini True, the United States Ministry of Truth, the United States Ministry of Truth, founded by the Biden administration to combat the First Amendment, born 1984. Now, back there, and this was in April, it only had 143 followers. We'll give you a little bit of an update on that later. Now, the uh, person selected to head the Ministry of Truth, because that's what everyone was then calling it, is uh, a young lady called Nina Yankovic. And um, so she was, she was uh, given this role. And uh, of course, people went on social media and 
started to investigate who she was, and, well, amongst other things, we found this. Information laundering is really quite ferocious. It's when a huckster takes some lies and makes them sound precocious by saying them in Congress or a mainstream outlet. So, disinformation's origins are slightly less atrocious. It's how you hide a little, hide a little lie. It's how you hide a little, hide a little lie. It's how you hide a little, hide a little lie. When Rudy Giuliani shared that intel from Ukraine, or when TikTok influencers say COVID can cause pain, they're laundering disinfo, and we really should take note and not support their lies with our wallet, voice, or vote. <laughs> and the laughter could be heard all, ac all across the globe, um, and of course. As this thing lost credibility at, at, at unheralded speed, um, it, it was reaching um, the mainstream, and uh, the mainstream political world was looking into this and, and finding lots to object to and finding the courage to stand up and, and speak out. So we've got a, a clip of, of Senator Ron Johnson uh, speaking about what he saw as the threat from this uh, innovative... Um, uh, Homeland Security uh, Department. This is Orwellian. This is a ministry of truth. And the person they've appointed is a Democrat propagandist. She pushed the uh, Russian collusion with the Trump campaign hoax. She pushed uh, the uh, hoax that uh, the laptop was some form of Russian information campaign. Those are probably two of the most egregious and I would say effective uh, piece of disinformation. They had more impact on our body politic, on our elections than anything else I could think of. And certainly had a greater impact than anything Russia ever could have dreamed of. And she was leading the charge on that disinformation. You can't make this up. So the disinformation governance board was headed by the queen of disinformation. And you can't make it up. And uh, after, after a couple of weeks of unrelenting attacks and a great deal of laughter, um, it, it, it ceased to be. So we, we have here the uh, New York Times reporting. I, I mean, a just deeply funny report. A panel to combat disinformation becomes the victim of it. The Department of Homeland Security suspended the work of a panel focused on the subject of disinformation. Um, the group had provoked accusations of government overreach. Um, and here we see Nina Yankovic, who was chosen to lead the board. She submitted her resignation on Wednesday. Uh, they continue. The Department of Homeland Security announced on Wednesday, Wednesday that it was, it was suspending the work of an internal advisory board intended to combat disinformation after what the department described as a deliberate disinformation campaign. The creation of the panel called the Disinformation Governance Board, set off, a set off a firestorm of criticism when it was announced last month. While the criticism came from across the political spectrum, including civil liberty groups, the fiercest denunciations came from the right. Republican leaders and commentators talked about it as an Orwellian ministry of truth that would police people's speech. So it's gone, but although it's collapsed, um, the, the Twitter account put up to mock it, right, the United States Ministry of Truth, it's doing quite well. It's now got 267,000 followers. So that's good. Uh, and I thought just to 
just to close on this, um, we should we should let the the final the final comment go to the Babylon B. And they decided that, given what you saw just a few moments ago, the only way to mark the passing uh, of the ministry of truth uh, was in song. In every job, there comes a time when one is told one must resign. You pack up all your crap, the job is done. And every time I check the facts, I must support the Democrats. A lie, a farce, as long as it serves us. Then as soon as it started, the ministry went down. The ministry went down, the ministry went down. Oh, as soon as it started, the ministry went down. In a most delightful way. A Biden laptop and emails are just a Russian fairy tale. He's innocent and only does cocaine. So before I was on the clock, I made a merry tick to talk. Who knew this job would not last long? Then as soon as it started, the ministry went down. The ministry went down. The ministry went down. Oh, as soon as it started, the ministry went down. Or was rolling in his grave. <laughs> Did you enjoy that, gentlemen? Uh, absolutely. And of course, what does it demonstrate that when enough people um, lift the stone or maybe only a few people have got to lift the stone, if enough people look under the stone, they can do a tremendous amount very easily. Exposure is such an important weapon. Yes, indeed. Well, look, I just want to make one little point about this, of course, because it's not the first time that uh, the optics around some uh, US government initiative haven't gone so well. So let's uh, put uh, Admiral John Poindexter on screen. This is from around the turn of the century. Uh, and he set up his information awareness office with some pretty uh, interesting uh, symbolism yes. involved with it. Uh, and the policy was called total information awareness. Uh, and of course, that also got massively ridiculed at the time as a result of that particular graphic. Uh, and also huge backlash in terms of the concerns over civil liberty and privacy and so on. But just uh, a quick reminder that although the Information uh, Awareness Office disappeared very quickly, very similar to what's happened uh, with the US Ministry of Truth, it didn't go away. Uh, it just morphed into other programs and which were eventually exposed when Edward Snowden uh, blew the whistle on, uh, on the government surveillance networks. So uh, this is a, a good step forward, uh, David, but People have got to keep their eye on the ball and make sure that they don't uh, let it reappear under some other uh, more, more covert guise. Absolutely, yes. This is this is uh, a huge win, uh, but uh, they will keep trying. Yes. Well, trying. Let's uh, speak <laughs> about trying news, and we must return to the BBC because. Uh, yesterday I discovered this and I had to read it several times to make sure what I was reading was actually true. Here we are, let's pop this up on screen. And the headline is that Charles and Camilla are to star in Jubilee EastEnders episode. And uh, this is the state of the country at present and uh, this man thinks that he's going to become uh, king in due course. Um, well, EastEnders, we've reported on before because one of their claims to fame is, of course, how many complaints have been levelled by members of the public against EastEnders. And uh, how can I show part of this? I'm afraid I've got to try another little video clip here, uh, because if you do the search yourself, you will find that the trail 
of complaints against swearing, violence, drugs, prostit prostitution, domestic violence, sex, gay sex, rape and more uh, has caused many people in the UK to say, why do we have to pay for this disgusting programme through our licence uh, fee? Uh, but of course, apparently for Charles and Camilla, this is the sort of thing that they would want to support. I'm sorry, that list is going on and on, <laughs> so you get the idea. So here we are. We're not in the real world talking to real nurses who've been working extremely hard during a very difficult time. Real nurses who are now losing their jobs or suffering under um, draconian management in the NHS. Uh, no, here we are on the street. Um, what can I say? sucking up to the celebrities of EastEnders. So this is sheer fantasy land, but it really gets worse because if I take a bit of the article, it says the Prince of Wales and Duchess of Cornwall are to guest star, guest star in an episode of EastEnders to mark the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. Charles and Camilla will join the residents of Albert Square for a street party held in honor of the monarch's 70 years on the throne. They filmed the scenes in March, when they visited the Soap's Elstree set and met members of the cast. The episode is due to air on the BBC, on BBC One on the 2nd of June. And uh, it went on saying, 2001, the Queen visited Soap Queen, Queen Dame Barbara Windsor, who played Peggy Mitchell on the EastEnders set. Prince Charles previously made a cameo appearance in Coronation Street in 2000 to mark the Soap's 40th anniversary. So I tried to put this in context. What does this actually tell us uh, about Prince Charles? Well, the happy couple, in fact. Well, this is just part of my thoughts on it. Uh, let's see what we can bring. He believes in the BBC. So that's his first mistake. But he also believes in EastEnders. And what has consistently been dark, uh, perverted betrayal of UK society Everything nasty, unpleasant has been poured into EastEnders. And that is, of course, because it's been poured into the from EastEnders into the minds of many young people. Um, he seems to believe that EastEnders is an important role model for UK society, particularly children. Uh, he's not interested in any of the complaints to the BBC about the programme content. He believes his appearance with Camilla will somehow endear him to the public because he's obviously very impressed to see himself on the set. And he will leave what I've called the poverty window of EastEnders. Morally, uh, they, these people are in poverty, but financially, they're all leading sad little lives. But he's going to return to life of obscene wealth. David, I think I'd better stop there. I, I've got a bit more to to get on to, although the theme changes, but is this man suitable to become monarch of UK? Not in my opinion. There are many, many questions over that. The stance on climate change, the stance, the stance on international government, the stance on the Great Reset. Um, is he going to defend our constitution? Is he going to defend our laws? Is he going to uh, honour his oath? I have many doubts. Yeah. And uh, just to show you a little bit of research goes a long way. Um, looking for EastEnders, this popped up. So here's a Sun article. No hate EastEnder viewers flood BBC with complaints after, quote, Nazi racist attack on Keegan, unquote. 
So this is an interesting situation that when it's EastEnders, of course, these are bad Nazis and the BBC doesn't like them. Uh, but if we move uh, over to Ukraine, uh, then, of course, these are good Nazis. So complete hypocrisy uh, from the, the uh, BBC as basically the Azov Nazis are airbrushed from the news. And you can see this by just doing a search for BBC Ukraine Nazis. You will find all of a sudden everything's disappeared. Uh, but of course, uh, there are plenty of reports um, where the BBC were themselves reporting the dangers of these vicious people buried not only in society in Ukraine, but working at high level in the government. So the BBC, I think, gets the prize once again for sheer crass reporting. Uh, but the duplicity of this organisation is breathtaking. Um, OK, David, uh, a maximum of nine minutes uh, is what's left to us. So uh, go ahead with uh, with some Scottish news. Yeah, we'll run through this. No problem. Scottish news. It's always difficult to pick which which bit of insanity to bring to you from Scotland because there's so much to choose from. Uh, insanity and corruption. So we'll start with uh, Nicola Sturgeon, who, oh, I mean, I don't know how she managed to say this. Talk about a brass neck. She said, quote, with the nation building we have been undertaking in government, Scotland is more ready than ever to transition to independence and take its place amongst the family of independent nations. There's so much I could say about that, but let's just let some st statistics do the talking. Firstly, government revenues, right? That's where we're at, okay? The black line is Scotland, including North Sea Oil. That's the one you want to look, look at. The dark blue line is the UK. The UK is bad enough, right? So 2009, both Scotland and the UK were minus 10%, which is which is dreadful. Um, the UK improved up to about minus 3%. Scotland didn't improve at all. And then COVID hit and the thing's gone straight down. So we're now running a deficit of 23%. That is not nation building, Nicola. That is not being ready to take your place amongst the uh, independent nations. Meanwhile, uh, on a practical level, Ferguson Marine shipyard bosses fear the £250 million ferries, they were meant to be £97 million ferries, but they're now £250 million ferries, will never be used amidst spiralling series of serious faults. Catalogue of faults with the two vessels at the centre of Scotland's ferry fiasco under stewardship of minister-controlled Ferguson Marine has prompted serious shipyard concerns over whether they will ever see service. Um... Some 65% of the, of the flaws relate to safety, maintainability, or specification requirements. So that's going well, but it's okay, because what do all fascist governments say? We'll make the trains run on time. Yeah, so uh, Nicola's nationalised ScotRail because she wasn't happy with the performance. Shall we see how that's going? Um, we have ScotRail to cut 700 daily services from Monday to combat the driver's uh, dispute disruption. Um, the indefinite reduction of around 694 weekday services is needed so Scotland can provide a reliable service, said Chief Executive Joanne Maguire. Now, you've got, to, you've got to admit, here's the genius. Here's the genius of Nicola Sturgeon, right? Because what she's saying is, if we put on fewer trains, fewer trains will be late. <sighs> that's, the sort of, that's the sort of leadership that's going to take us to our place amongst the nations. Dave, uh, David, the Telegraph it, report. 
So Sorry, if I may cut in and we could pop back to the previous slide, I, I couldn't no, count noticing that top left on the screen, the big banner, which is presumably getting at people who are not paying, um, but it's in Ukrainian colours. And I think this is outrageous that they should be suggesting <laughs> that Ukrainians don't pay their train fares. Or have I got that wrong? I'm not sure, Brian. Um, it, it, you could be right. So we've got here, we've got <laughs> the Telegraph reporting on this as well. Um, another humiliation in Nicola Sturgeon's economic omni-shambles. This is a correct assessment. Uh, she nationalised ScotRail launching a ticket sale, then slashing services. Uh, follows a long line of pratfalls. Chaos at ScotRail is the latest twist in a third month for Nicola Sturgeon and a Scottish Nationalist Party. So, then we come to this. So, obviously, it's not going well for Nicola. She's been to America, no one's really noticed. It's not going tremendously well. So, she's decided that she would get uh, Michelle O'Neill, head of Sinn Féin, to come for a wee visit. So here you see Michelle O'Neill uh, tweeting out, delighted to meet Scotland's First Minister Nicola Sturgeon in beautiful Edinburgh. The historic bonds between Scotland and the island of Ireland, interesting way of phrasing it, go back centuries, actually a lot longer than that, but never mind. Uh, we enjoy a long and enduring affinity as neighbours and friends. Moving forward, we will strengthen the bonds that tie us. So I decided to ask a question. So I tweeted out, as a gesture of goodwill towards the Scots, will you assist in revealing the truth about this mur multiple murder by the provisional IRA? And I, I tweeted out the picture of a, of a Belfast um, Gable End, which remembers these three, these three uh, young men, brothers John and Joseph McCaig from Ayr and Dougald McCaughey from Glasgow. They were 17, 18 and 23. They were off duty, they were abducted, and they were murdered. How do you think, gentlemen, that response was received by my First Minister and the person who's leading my nation to its place amongst the other nations? Sorry, that, that was Twitter, David. You. Yeah, I think that there's only one I'd come, really, isn't there? Yes, she blocked me. So just as the Poles couldn't talk about the Katyn massacre, under the oppressive Stalinist and communist Russian regime, it transpires, I can't ask questions about what happened to these three soldiers uh, under the Nicola Sturgeon regime. So I thought that was quite interesting. Um, and we finish here with a little video from uh, an, an excellent campaigner for all things free in Scotland, a chap called Stuart Wayton. He was part of the No To Name Person campaign and he's now, despite being an atheist, part of a Let Us Pray campaign because the, the nationalists are seeking to, the so-called nationalists, uh, are seeking to prevent any sort of praying for people who are wanting to overcome same-sex attraction. Um, they're trying to make this illegal. Um, they, there have been people giving evidence to Parliament to say that prayer for someone who, who doesn't want to be experiencing same-sex attraction anymore um, is literally torture, and they've described it as such. So here's Stuart Wayton speaking against this idea and for the uh, traditional values of our nation.
this bill, as far as I can see, is unbelievably dangerous, unbelievably patronising towards gay people, uh, and it degrades law and it will degrade society by helping further create a situation where we presume that people can't cope with different opinions and we essentially make different opinions criminal, in this case, Christian uh, opinions or other people, other religions or other people who have got uh, you know, questions about uh, homosexuality or sexuality in general. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a fundamental threat to one of the most basic freedoms in Western society. So there you have an example of what Alexander Dugan was talking about, uh, liberal totalitarianism. Yes, okay, right, we're, we're right out of time. So very quickly, David, uh, let people know about uh, an interview re you recently did with, with uh, Brian and Alex. Yes, the three of us went down to give the third degree to Sheikh Imran Hussein, um, leading and controversial um, Islamic scholar uh, that both Alex and I have followed for some time. There's many interesting things to say. We have a short clip. For me to offer a gentle word of advice to my Hindu brothers, to my Christian brothers, my, and you are my brothers, provided that you don't have hatred in your heart for me and for the truth that has come to me. Once we can enter into friendly dialogue, as we're doing here today, even sometimes with a little bit of humor, but you know, you're all dressed in dark colors, and my color is light from the Caribbean, so maybe you get a little bit more humor from me than from you. Yeah. <laughs> when, when we enter into friendly dialogue with each other, we can then share with each other I'm not speaking condescendently to a Christian when I ask him to return to his scripture, to fall in love with his scripture, and to the Hindu, to the Vedas, to the Jew, to the Buddhist. It's not condescending, and I'm not in boxing. I do not engage in boxing matches with people of different religions. So this is the first stage of the, the road back, road back. To, to, to preserving faith in a world which is becoming increasingly godless. So that's the first part of a, of a, of a that's the first part of a three-part interview. Uh, it'll be three separate videos. It was, a, it was one long, two and a half hour long interview. Um, so that will be up on the website uh, this afternoon. And, and David, just to say, um, wonderful to be able to do that. Fascinating that people are already coming in uh, the chat box to say that they've been watching some of the talks that this man's given, which are up on uh, YouTube. And uh, if you're not familiar with him, have a look on the internet, have a listen to some of the talks that he gives about uh, major events in the world and particularly the troubles of the world. Um, and David, uh, to end then, uh, a final slide. Final slide, it says monkeypox. Uh, so we're not playing Ukraine anymore. Yes, indeed. Well, we've given the answer to that because, of course, we're not playing Ukraine anymore because the truth is coming out that it's not actually going Ukraine's way at the moment. Yes. Uh, so there we are.
Uh, just like to say at the very end of the news, I, uh, yesterday I met a lovely couple from Bristol who spoke to me locally. They were down visiting relatives and uh, they were quick to say to me how much they were enjoying the UK column and that they've been watching us on a very regular basis. So I'm going to say thank you very much. It was great meeting you. Lovely chat. And thank you for um, saying that we're appreciated because that's always a big boost. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of minutes on the main uh, stream for any for members for some extra. Yeah, we will see you then. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye.